Last week we started a little break from our, our longer sermon series in the book of Numbers, uh, spending three weeks looking at the Gospel of Luke, looking at the, the details of the life of Jesus, particularly trying to match up as close as we can uh, to where Jesus was at this point on the calendar. And so last week, about two weeks before Resurrection Sunday, we said, well, what was Jesus up to all those years before in his earthly ministry? And now here we are one week before Resurrection Sunday. What was Jesus up to then? Uh, Not just to get a history lesson, but to look closely and see who this Jesus really is. See that the purpose of the gospel accounts is to reveal uh, this one who has come and what it means for us. And so that's the question we're going to be asking. Who is this Jesus? As we look at this week at Luke 19, it is printed out in your bulletin over on page 3. Last week it was Jesus on the road toward Jerusalem as he was encountering Jericho. Now he's actually nearing the city and entering in just one week before his resurrection, just days before his death. So Luke 19, give attention to God's word. Uh, Speaking of Jesus, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where... On entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that would that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered into the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, it's only, only by your spirit can we understand your word. It's only by your spirit that our eyes can be opened to see Jesus, our King. And we pray that you would grant that spirit to be at work with, among us, uh, that we would delight uh, and even call out gloriously praising God as your disciples did so many years ago. For you have done marvelous things, uh, great and mighty works to save. And we thank you in the name of that King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Who is this Jesus? Well, this really is a fascinating passage to ask that question. Because Luke gives us these these three scenes of Jesus, and we, we find Jesus in, in well, very different aspects of who he is, very different facets of his, of his personality, side by side by side. Um, we, we might be tempted as we, as we look through uh, to think that there's one side of Jesus that we like a little better than the others. Ah, that's the Jesus I like. But the purpose of, of looking at these side by side is not to, not to pick which one we like, but to realize that the true Savior is all of this in one. Uh, and take one of those away and you lose Jesus. Take one of those away and you have no salvation. Uh, this is exactly what we need. Uh, exactly what we are called uh, to understand, embrace. This is the Jesus who saves. So let's take a look, asking ourselves, who is this Jesus in this scene? Uh, and, and call forth the response of praise together. So the first scene, verses 28 to 40, gives us the, the humble king and his peace. The humble king and his peace. So ever since Luke chapter eight, not chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, Jesus begins turning toward Jerusalem. And it's finally now in chapter 19 that he enters in. And he's been talking about this journey to Jerusalem and, and what's going to happen there. Uh, but now it actually uh, begins to start. He actually makes uh, his way in. And there's this really powerful picture. And the picture is the king is arriving. And the king is arriving specifically in humility, bringing peace. The king is arriving. Uh, there's, there, there's no doubt uh, in, in the passage that this Jesus is portrayed as the king. Well, you see it even in the very beginning as he, as he acquires his his, his ride, his vehicle, right? The last way in, he decides, it's determined uh, that he will, he will ride an animal in, and he gives very specific instructions. And, and the gospel writers like to slow down and, and, and go through the instructions. Uh, and that the Savior says to two of his disciples, go into the village, and that specifically they're going to find in that village uh, a donkey's colt tied at a particular place, uh, and that that's not any, any donkey's colt, but a donkey's colt that had never been ridden on by anyone before. And that they will be asked, why are you taking this? And that they were to respond in a particular way, the Lord has need of it. Uh, and sure enough, the disciples go forth, and it happens exactly as Jesus said it would. There is, uh, there is the colt tied up. Uh, it is indeed a colt that no one ever has ridden on. They are asked, why are you untying it? And they respond, the Lord has need of it. Did you get the picture? This, this Jesus is the king. 
with, with kingly authority, with kingly rule. Not only does he know uh, what is before him, uh, but, but he has the authority to, to order and command and acquisition. The Lord has need of it. The king has need of it. That settles it. Um, as Paul puts it, speaking of this king of kings, the, the son of God, uh, Paul puts it, all things were made by him and for him. All things were made by him and for him. And, and here, even in this animal, you get an example of it. The, the cult was made by Jesus for Jesus. And here he, he arrives, the Lord has need of it. And that settles it. By him and for him. Uh, it it kind of does put things in perspective as you think about the details of our own lives, connecting them uh, to, to the king. That everything in your world is made by King Jesus for King Jesus. By King Jesus, for King Jesus. In, in particular, uh, there's a real sense in which when God draws you to himself, when Jesus calls you to himself, uh, that the message to you is this same declaration. The Lord has need of it. That's what, that's what God speaks over your life as he, as he calls you to faith. King Jesus says, the Lord has need of it. Not because King Jesus is desperate for help, right? It's just like it's just like the donkey. He's not desperate. It's that he has a plan. He has a purpose, uh, and so he has the right to, to command. Uh, and and this created thing serves his glory. How much more those created in his image and those called uh, to salvation to him? The Lord speaking over your life. The Lord has need of it. He's got a glorious plan and purpose. He's the king. He made you, uh, and now uh, all things are made by him, for him. And that goes with us as well. Um, but he sh- So he shows himself to be the king, not just any king, uh, even, even the Lord himself. Uh, the, the details are, are significant, woven in. Uh, a, a cult that no one has ever ridden on. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, and, and you, you look at those animals that are used for God... Uh, uh, the only only animals that are fit for God's use are those who have never yet been used for human purposes. Uh, so, if this is going to be one for King Jesus, no no man has ever ridden on it. That's that's an animal fit for God's use because here comes the King of Kings, uh, the the royal son himself. Then there, then there's the details of the of the animal uh, itself. Now, for us, a, a donkey and the the foal of a donkey, a colt. Uh, donkey has this connotation of kind of a joke in our minds. Uh, no one really gets excited about the idea of riding in on a donkey. But 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 in the ancient world, a very very different uh, very different image. Um, it, uh, riding on a donkey could have very much royal connotations. In fact, you go back to the days of King David, when David is very old and he wants to establish his son Solomon. As the, as the recognized heir and king, uh, one of the ways he has Solomon hailed as the new king is he has Solomon paraded around on the royal mule. Because it would have, ah, the king. That's the royal mule. Look, look, here's the new king, King Solomon. Uh, and so not just any animal for King Jesus, specifically uh, the, the, the foal of a donkey. We read back in Genesis uh, that all the way from the beginning, uh, there was there was this these prophecies that uh, that from the line of Judah, from David's tribe, 
there would be the kings, uh, and, and the kings would have, have donkeys uh, that, would, that would speak forth of their, uh, of their kingship. But the most powerful prophecy is what we read in Zechariah 9. Zechariah really laying out this whole scene. Uh, as Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he, humble, a mountain on a donkey, on a, foal, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah predicted it. And as Jesus nears uh, the city of Jerusalem itself, it is only this animal that will do. Uh, the message is quite clear. Behold your king. Uh, and, and the disciples seem to get it. And now this is not just the twelve. We're told it's the whole number. The whole It's a big group here, so it's disciples in a, in a more loose sense. Uh, so the twelve and, and the crowds, they seem to get it. The message of Jesus on this, on this, on this donkey. Well, well, you look at what they do. Uh, they they begin putting their cloaks on the on the road in front of the in front of Jesus as he rides. It's it's kind of the the old uh, ancient world idea of rolling out the red carpet, right? If, you know, if the Queen of England came and visited Medford, uh, we'd we'd you know limo pulls up, you know there'd be a red carpet. The Queen of England would get out of the out of the limo. On. Well, this is here's the ancient red carpet. They throw their cloaks down on the road. Other gospels add that they they use palm branches as well. On, on the road, graded as a king. And indeed, uh, they use the very words of Scripture uh, to greet him as the king. Verse 38, uh, we're told what they shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, they're, they're quoting uh, Psalm 118. They're quoting it. Uh, Psalm 118, if you, if you read the whole thing, it's clearly a messianic psalm. It's clearly predicting that here's this Messiah Who's going to come? It also predicts his, he's the, the stone the builders rejected. So there's that rejection element there too. But, but they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about uh, this uh, one who comes in the name of the Lord. They actually paraphrase the psalm because the psalm reads, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they paraphrase, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, that's actually true. That, that's, a good, uh, that's a good paraphrase. That, that's the meaning of it. This one who comes is not any old one. It's the king himself, the long-awaited savior, the Messiah. He's, he's here. And, of course, Jesus accepts all of it. Right? He accepts their praise as, as this is exactly what would be due. And, in fact, when the Pharisees tell, uh, tell him to quiet the crowds because they think the crowds are saying blasphemous words about Jesus, uh, he, he says to the Pharisees, well, if they shut up, even... Even the stones will cry out and recognize and honor uh, the, the, the king himself, right? The, the created order will, 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 as it were, recognize the, the creator and the king uh, himself. But not just any kind of king. Not just any kind of king. Uh, and, and Zechariah mentions that specifically. Uh, that this is the king but coming in humility. Uh, and that's and that's a key part of the image of, of riding on a on a colt, a, a king coming in humility, bringing peace. In fact, Zechariah actually actually goes on to speak of that uh, in the next verse. It says, "And he shall speak peace to the nations." Right. So the idea of uh, riding on on a donkey, 
Coming humbly is to bring peace, as opposed to bringing war, uh, as opposed to a, a king dressed or uh, riding a, a war stallion, right? coming to defeat those Romans garrisoned there in, in Jerusalem, the invaders, the oppressors. Uh, that's, he doesn't come to make war. Indeed, he comes to make peace. And we connect that to, to what we talked about last week and what Jesus has said all along, is that in his mind, the entry into Jerusalem has a very specific purpose. He is going there in order to be rejected and killed, and then rise. He's going there to be rejected and killed. So you get the, you put the pieces together. He comes humbly bringing peace, rejection, and death. Yeah, it's because the rejection and death is what brings the peace. That's how he wins it. That's how he, he provides it for his people. Uh, by, uh, by absorbing judgment himself, he will make peace and speak peace to the nations. Because as we think about peace, uh, we need to realize that the context of Scripture is the great war is not between Jews and Romans uh, or even between uh, other um, groups of men. The great war uh, is between a rebellious mankind uh, and their creator. That, that at the very beginning... Uh, we as God's image bearers rebelled against our good and loving Father, uh, our Creator. Uh, whether it was Adam leading the way or every uh, every offspring since then, uh, we reject the God who, who made us and cares for us. Uh, we rebel against Him, a kind of a revolt, cosmic revolt, a rebellion, and therefore there is there's war, there's enmity, uh, tension, Warfare between God and man. Uh, and, and the king comes, even, even God the Son himself, to end the war, to bring peace. Uh, the very thing that we need the most, uh, to, to have peace with our creator. Right? We could have, have peace on this earth all day, and it would, it would bring no lasting fruit apart from, no lasting blessing, apart from peace with the God who made us. Um, and apart from rescue from the, uh, from the judgment that, that that warfare ultimately deserves. But that's the peace that Jesus brings. Uh, that's, it was proclaimed at his birth. You might remember the angels uh, spoke that word of glory to God in the highest peace on earth. And now here at the very end when he's about to accomplish it, even the crowds uh, seem to speak more than they know uh, as, they talk about, as they talk about peace in heaven. Yeah. This Jesus is coming to bring peace, uh, peace uh, with God, because Jesus will take uh, the judgment that our rebellion deserves. That's why he's coming into Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, you see here this king who comes humbly, uh, bringing this peace. Well, that's exactly what we need. We need a savior like that. We need a king like that. And that's exactly who he is. Uh, the, the, only, the only question is, will, will we receive him? Uh, will we recognize and receive, uh, or, or will we, like the Pharisees, just uh, want everyone to keep silent? Well, let's go to the next picture. The sorrowful Messiah and his warning. Oh, we'll go a little quicker, these last two. Um, but you notice as you go from this first section, 28 to 40, uh, to the next uh, quick scene, that the... It seems like the, the emotional tone changes very, very quickly. Because right? in the first scene, it's, it's, it's all about 
adulation and joy and rejoicing. Oh, they're hailing and singing. There's this king coming. And then all of a sudden you have Jesus wailing. Jesus weeping. It's a powerful scene. It's helpful to know a little bit of the geography. Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is right outside of the city of Jerusalem, but it's at a little bit higher elevation than Jerusalem. So as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he can see the city in front of him, a little bit below him. So that's why it speaks about the city coming into view. Yeah, he, he gets it. He sees it. Uh, of course, the city, which represents uh, the, the, the heart of God's people. This is uh, God's old covenant people there, this spiritual capital, the very embodiment of, uh, of the people. And he sees this holy city and, and he weeps over it. Right? Verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Things that make for peace. Right? We, just, we just saw what that was. What is it that makes for peace? It's him. He's the one. Uh, the, the king and the, and the salvation that he brings. Uh, but, but he says that they're hidden from your eyes. See, Jesus knows, he can see, even, even through the cheering of the crowd, uh, that ultimately there are, there are very few who actually see. It's what John said in his gospel, that, that the, the son, Jesus, the king, came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Uh, and he sees that as he takes in the city. He knows that, uh, that for the most part, this, this city does not see. Uh, does not see who he is. Uh, it, it will be lived out in the days to come, uh, as this city is the place where he is condemned as if he were guilty. Uh, this city is the place uh, where there will be cries to crucify this king. This city is the place uh, where people will mock him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? At the very one who, who, who is bringing peace and accomplishing peace, and it's hidden, it's hidden from their eyes. And, and here's King Jesus weeping over it, uh, distraught by this, by this rejection. Uh, and, and warning that this, this rejection of peace will bring about, bring about judgment. Uh, very specifically, he gives, he gives a prophecy that he'll talk about more in, in the week ahead in his teaching in Jerusalem, that there's going to come a day when this city will be destroyed. He gives some pretty specific details, that the enemies of this city are going to build a barricade around it, uh, and they're going, to, they're going to destroy the city and its people, even tearing stones down one from another. And history tells us this is exactly what happened. Not too many years later, uh, in Jerusalem, as, uh, as the, the people revolt against the, the Roman oppressors, uh, Rome sends all their armies in, uh, surrounds the city. They build a barricade, a little barricade around it. Trees are cut down for something like nine miles around Jerusalem in order to get enough wood to build a barricade around so no one gets out. So the city is besieged and starved, and finally the armies break through, break in, and destroy the city. The order comes specifically from Caesar himself uh, that the city is to be destroyed. That there are demolition crews uh, in charge of tearing down the one stone from an another, the temple and the walls, uh, so that there's this picture of complete, complete and utter judgment. And, and Jesus here knows that it's coming, right? He's the king. 
Uh, he knows that it's going to be judgment for, for unbelief through human instruments, but ultimately uh, ultimately even, even a judgment from the Lord. Uh, and, he, and he weeps over it. Uh, he weeps over it. Uh, it gives us this powerful reminder. It kind of sounds like some of the prophets of old, doesn't it? You might think of, of, of Jeremiah, for example, giving prophecies of Jerusalem going to be destroyed, and he's, he's the weeping prophet mourning over such great judgment and, and such great rejection of God's, uh, God's law and his people. And here's Jesus. He's, he's the ultimate prophet, the, the greatest of the kings, the ultimate uh, one who speaks the heart of God, and, and he too weeps. Right, here's, here we get, get this picture of, of God, uh, of, of our Savior. This is not one uh, who takes delight in the death of the wicked, as the Bible tells us. Now, this, is, this is a God who desires that all would come uh, to repentance. This is a God who is slow to anger and abounding of steadfast love. And yet, this God is the Holy One. Uh, and and, and the, the king comes bringing peace. But if that king and his offer of peace is, is rejected and scorned, uh, if this Jesus is not received, uh, then, then, then there is judgment due uh, for sin. Uh, and Jesus weepingly reminds, reminds them of this. Uh, it, is, it is this powerful encouragement and, and challenge. It's an encouragement to remember as, as we walk through this world and all the, all the sin and the darkness and the evil of it, uh, to remind ourselves that we have a Savior who is, uh, well, he sympathizes, he understands, he's not indifferent to the ugliness of this world, right? In fact, he came right in it, uh, saw it, endured it, uh, wept over it. So, so we have a Savior, a King who understands the ugliness of it, uh, but also a, a King who understands well enough to, to warn about the judgment to come. Actually, he does more than just warn. Uh, because before uh, there ever comes to this judgment, he continues his ride in to ultimately receive judgment himself. So that uh, bearing the judgment that this city deserves, that all who do receive him, uh, all who are called by his name, give the right to become are given the right to become children of God. Right. So this before the judgment on this city comes, what does Jesus do? He receives the judgment and cries out, "Father, forgive them." Right? He, he dies in order to bear the punishment for us. And that's the same uh, king who comes to us. Uh, the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem is, is just this picture of what all our world deserves, including us. Uh, but but there, is, there is this delay. It's the mercy and love of God. Uh, and, and before that final judgment comes, here is Jesus uh, bearing judgment for us and, and offering peace to all who will trust in him. Uh, a, a weeping savior in his mourning. Finally, you get this scene of an angry Messiah and his cleansing. So again, again, the scene changes quickly and the, the emotional tone changes. So you go from rejoicing to a weeping Jesus to what looks like an angry Jesus. So he enters into, into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple courts. Uh, remember the temple is that that special dwelling place of God, and it has a, a structure, but then courts around it, and the courts are there for the people to be able to come and worship and pray. And he finds in one of the outer courts, uh, there's, there's not room for worship because it has been taken over 
uh, by money changers and, and merchants. Oh, sure, they're there because uh, these things serve the tabernacle or the, the temple. You need animals for sacrifice and you need money uh, translated, uh, exchanged into the temple currency. Uh, but it didn't have to be here. And co not coincidentally, uh, the leaders of the, uh, of the temple, the rulers of the temple, are making quite a tidy profit over these things sold right there. All right, it's, it's like you go to the Phillies game and everything's jacked up. Well, that's exactly what happens when you buy your animal right there in front of the temple or exchange your currency right there in front of the temple. So instead of it being a house of prayer, it's actually a den of robbers. And here's Jesus. He, he takes it in and, and it, well, it looks like Jesus is angry. The other gospels fill in even more details that Jesus uh, makes a, a whip out of cords that he overturns the tables of the money changers, that he drives the, the merchants and the animals out. This is Jesus who looks angry. Now, not angry in the sense of human anger, uh, but, but so not an out-of-control anger, but a, a controlled uh, but, but righteous indignation against uh, wickedness and evil that is in front of him. Uh, and this place that sh was designed and uh, ordained by God to bring glory to God, but that glory to God has been, uh, has been stolen by those who want glory for themselves. And here is the one, as the, as the king of glory and the great defender of the glory of God, comes in to, to vanquish this evil, to, to drive it out, to judge it, to cleanse it. Uh, he uses his kingly authority to to clean up the mess. It's, a, it's an act of judgment. In many ways, it's, it's Jesus giving this little foretaste of what he just said is going to happen to the whole city. Uh, that, that the evil is going to be judged as the, uh, in this city is going to be judged and cleansed from God's world. Uh, a picture of it. Should we be thankful for an angry Jesus? Does that seem strange to picture Jesus as... as being angry? Would we want a Jesus who didn't get angry? Think about that. Um, a king who came into the world and saw the ugliness, right, the same ugliness that you and I see and feel, the evil and, and, and the glory of God being stolen and thwarted, see that evil and ugliness uh, a king who would see it, take it in, and just be indifferent? Eh. Is that Jesus any good to us? An indifferent Jesus? Uh, untouched, unfazed, unconcerned, un, uh, uninterested in, in evil and ugliness and, and rebellion? No, actually, uh, a, a, a king who cares, a king who is, who is angered, uh, who represents the, the purity of God in the face of evil, well, that's exactly what we need. It's exactly what we want if we truly understand uh, this situation. Uh, indifference is worse. Uh, we need a God who hates, a king who hates sin, uh, reflecting the glory of God, and is motivated to do something about it. Right? It's not, Jesus that, not just that Jesus gets angry about it, but he does something that performs this act of, of cleansing. And again, that's what's going to happen to the whole city. But again, there's a delay. Before it happens, 
before there's this judgment on the city and cleansing of the city, what happens but Jesus bears judgment. Uh, Jesus will take upon himself uh, the, the, the guilt uh, that, that sinners deserve. And, and there is, there is the, uh, the, great, uh, the great glory and hope for us. And Jesus sees the ugliness of the world, and yes, even the ugliness of our own hearts, right? The, the, the temple within that was created to be, our, our very lives created to be, a place where the glory of God dwells, and we've, we've dirtied that temple. Uh, and here is God, uh, the king himself who comes, and he's not indifferent to it, but he has the kingly authority to do something about it. And for his people, it's, he will bear the judgment. Uh, he will bear the wrath of uh, it falls on him so that we can be set free, so that we can be cleansed without judgment. Uh, that's what the king does for us. And, of course, he will come back and finish the work of cleansing. He will drive all evil out of this world. And so we do say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we, as we see the evil of the world. We're thankful that he still cares about the ugliness around us. Uh, but he provides this way of salvation uh, by bearing it himself. So you see the three pictures? Humble Messiah, sorrowful Messiah, angry Messiah. Again, the point is not pick one. Let's realize that, that, that the real Jesus is all of them in this perfect unity. Uh, take part of it away and, and you don't have Jesus anymore. But actually that's a really good thing. Uh, because it's, it's only this full-orbed Jesus that can truly save. Uh, one who comes in the, the ugliness and turmoil of the world uh, and is zealous for the glory of God, uh, hating ugliness and evil, and yet having the kingly authority to do something about it, and, and coming in humility to actually bring peace and not the warful judgment that we actually deserve. What a king. He's the one uh, we need. And so the real question then, having understood more of who this Jesus is, is how will we respond? Right? Just like on that road into Jerusalem, there are, there are two different reactions. Will we be those who, who shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, receiving him? Uh, or, or those who, who reject like the Pharisees? I just wish everyone would be quiet about this, Jesus. Uh, well, it's only his grace that could ever change our hearts, but the call for us is, uh, is to respond. Uh, whether it's the first time in trust and faith in this Christ as Savior King, or whether it's just uh, another day and another realization, oh, how much we need this Savior. We cry out together, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you, you are a great God. You have, Lord, in your love, uh, made a way for uh, rebels to be forgiven, uh, for your glory and righteousness to be manifest and upheld. And, and Lord, we, we thank you for the King who has come and who has conquered uh, and who brings peace even to, even to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that through faith in him, uh, Lord, we, we might know that, that peace that you promise. Uh, we do give you thanks. Uh, be at work and be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.